0: What they say, hard work, hard work, work. I earn my pay, hard work, hard work, work. do it every day.
1: All right, so it's been a minute since I've released anything on this show, and honestly, it's been a crazy time both in the world um, with COVID 19, the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, I should say, the civil unrest. Process The business at Wellboat Bikes has been through the roof busy. There's been a lot of chaos, but uh, personally, in the interim, um, I was married last week, had a lot of build-up to that, and then um, because of COVID, we weren't able to do the wedding that we planned. It was in our backyard. We had a lot of prep to get ready for that. We did a small little thing, and then um, we've been doing a kitchen renovation in place of a honeymoon so kind of the your anti-honeymoon in a way uh, stay home and work really hard around the clock Uh, and then that didn't get wrapped up in the week that I took off so I'm still doing that kind of burning the midnight oil as well as back in the shop and running things and anyway because of all that was going on and the chaos and you know I I haven't had a moment to um, schedule any interviews or catch up with anyone um but, you know, seasonally, that's just how it goes. Um, but right before, uh, kind of, you know, early in COVID-19, um, some of you know I'm part of the underground uh, here in Tampa. There's a, you know, for some time there's this kind of church community that's been an experiment really in a, kind of a decentralized church, kind of a turning upside down the model of church and um you know building a community of what we refer to as micro churches, many that met at homes, things like social initiatives. There's lots of lots of cool communities throughout the area, um, throughout the world now, that um, kind of are part of that network. Well, within that network, leadership uses like using the language of the Bible, kind of recognizing elders of each of those micro churches so that there'd be a community of leadership and they ordain and recognize elders usually um quite young even um as they are recognized as leader, spiritual leaders in their community and people that are building things up and so um i am often asked to facilitate lead teach um particularly around um especially with they have a class called elders in training and i often will teach the class on oh, excuse me <coughs> The poor, um, so there, the network has kind of a conviction um, and, a, and a driving value to put the poor at the center of its aims and work, and recognizing something like a maybe a preferential option for the poor and this explicit stated value. So, I teach a class for elders in training to make sure everyone's been introduced to this material, and in this, I do my best to give kind of the lay of the land, my understanding of poverty. Um, The challenges from our perspective with our inherited lenses, um, and then also kind of make a sweeping run through all of scripture and do my best to kind of give throughout the biblical narrative God's heart for the poor. And I wanted to share that with you here, one, because I thought it was time to get something uploaded, but then also because... Well, I listened to it again the other morning and I'm quite proud of it, frankly. I, I, I think this is my, uh, you know, while a lot of the material I source, it's really, um, I've really developed it. It's become part of my own. I mean, this is like, if you really want to understand something at the core of me, this is maybe one of the best articulations of something I most believe in. And uh, hopefully that comes across as I teach it. This was a Zoom call. It was the f- second class I think I did on Zoom, which was a sh- is a you know not the easiest thing to transition to if you're not familiar doing that. So sitting in your house teaching through a screen is a little different than being able to engage with and read a room. Um, but I think it went pretty well. Um, there's a couple hiccups in audio, but it's overall pretty good. At the very end it does cut off as I'm concluding a final story um, and I just quickly like in this fashion just and you know jump in and end the story to kind of punctuate that for you. Um, Anyway so I hope you enjoy um, this class and actually I think a lot of the material is super relevant um, all the time Uh, but particularly now as we look at the world and kind of the the cries that are coming from the streets for uh, justice, racial justice, social justice, um, and I think it's a time to think uh, hard about what we do next and be very intentional um, and careful. And I, for me, these lessons around poverty um, are applicable, relevant. And hopefully timely to be shared with you here. So um, without further ado, here you go.
2: I want to start out. I, we're, so we want to talk about the poor. And I guess to start, I would actually, and not everybody has to answer this, but I'd love it if a couple of you would jump in and just uh, tell me, what poverty is I would say poverty is the lack of the resources that that you need you don't even have the basic for life Okay
1: Yeah also limited access to the resources you need mm-hmm good.
0: I think poverty is lack um, in any area. Um, it covers a lot of different uh, spheres. I think it could cover physical, financial. Uh, it could cover um, spiritual as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like poverty is like the state of, of not ever seeming like you can have enough. Like there's always another bill or another thing that you need that you can't get that you're working towards getting. Hmm.
2: All right. So I feel like I, so I had, I got some notes here, but I'm, I'm going to jumble them up because I actually want to start with this. Um, the, the, the way that we define poverty will, uh, define, will shape the way that we respond to poverty or interact with poverty, right? Um, and so your answers are great, actually, a lack of uh, resources, a lack of access. Um, this could be something that's physical, something that's spiritual. I think we're going to cover all of those and hopefully maybe dig a little bit deeper into each of those kind of ideas. I think the most common answer to that is deficit or lack, right? Like you don't have enough to eat. You don't have enough to pay the bill. Like it's a lack. It's the the initial answer we gave. It's a lack of resources or, um, or, or not having enough to pay the bills or to do whatever, right? Um, And now one of the things, if you understand, okay. So I always use this really cheesy um, illustration of this, but it sticks in my mind. So I hope it sticks in yours and it's Tampa. So Tampa is like home to the Cuban sandwiches, right? So if I, if you are poor because you lack a Cuban sandwich, so you don't have it. And if I have all the Cuban sandwiches And I give you a Cuban sandwich and you were poor because of the deficit of the Cuban sandwich. Then that puts me in a position to save you from poverty. Right. And it puts you in a position like where you're not poor anymore. And I would argue that that's a um, there's underlying assumptions in, in the deficit definition so that it, it, the trouble that it creates is that it makes benevolent, um, savior messianic complexes in the non materially poor where we go, Oh, I can fix this. I can solve this. I can meet your need and solve your poverty. Um, and then, and then in the, in the, in the, for the person that doesn't have the Cuban sandwich, they become a passive recipient. Right. And this is this, what this does is it creates a kind of like outsider Santa Claus, and a passive recipient in the in the from the non materially poor and the materially poor, and so by the way, I would argue this is not good for either person involved right um, it doesn't It doesn't put the person in material poverty, the person that lacks a Cuban sandwich, in a position to define the type of sandwich that they want or to empower them to get the thing that they need, like access the issue of access was brought up, um, but rather is like some potentially disempowering, like maybe once is an act of grace, but over a period of time could be problematic and disempowering and potentially further entrench poverty, depending on how we understand poverty. But I would argue that it's, it's, it's an anemic definition to think it's just that you lack something. Right. And so we can go deeper than the material poverty and the assets. And, and let's just go through a, uh, cause there's kind of like an entanglement of attributes like, material poverty. I lack some money. I lack a house. I lack some food or some clothes, but then like physical weakness, right? Perhaps I'm sick or I don't have the strength or I have a, I have some sort of a disability or there's something that I can't accomplish. And a lot of times throughout the world, when you face like villages or families or people with even material poverty, if they're not properly, they don't have the proper healthcare and nutrition and things like that, you'll often find that they also suffer with, physical ailment, illness, weakness, those things. Now also, and you can look at the local homeless is a great way to illustrate this is isolation. So social, social lack of access, um, being cut off or in parts of the world where you're in a village that is in material poverty, but it's also cut off from the city, cut off from the transit line, cut off from the grocery stores, right? Um, Vulnerability, so this is just a, a general like, uh, when things go bad, they go really bad for me because I don't have the like buttressing in place to survive mistakes that I make or bad things that happen. Like for example, what we're going through right now and the impact that that will have on some, while while some of us are like, oh, this is a hardship. Even if we lost our jobs, we're on computers, we have internet access, we're sitting in comfy places, we have electricity. There's unbelievable wealth and resource at our disposal, even in a time of hardship. Right. And so that's, that's a, that's a kind of, well, a lack of vulnerability and vulnerability be the removal of those things. And then, and then spiritual was brought up. So spiritual poverty. And and I would just say like for the sake of moving this along is let's just say dysfunctional relationships with yourself, with your family, with your neighbors, with God, with the planet, um, and, and, and let's just say that, and there's a million more things that could be said about the dynamics of a spiritual poverty, but I would argue somewhat relational is at, at the heart of those things. Um, so, okay. So what happens, let's see, I'm going to, I'm just run through a couple things because one of the things is like, understand some would argue that poverty is a way of being disempowered through a complex framework of interacting systems. So, um, you know, i talked before about the benevolent Santa Claus figure, like the, well, what happens is you have like the materially poor and the non-materially poor and this God savior complex, like the one that comes to the materially poor to save them or, or to do this or that. And what you'll find is these unhealthy dynamics, power dynamics between them, where the non-materially poor will, they often become like a, a captivity comes into place where, they don't have voice or say in determining their own hoped for outcomes, determining their own solutions, determining which is actually a way to say they further entrench their own poverty. Um, There's deception in principalities and powers. So the Bible uses the language of principalities and powers. And I would argue this is like, think of any system that exists. It's the inner, the inner reality, the spirituality of those systems structures. These are the legitimating narratives um, that, that further oppress and work against the flourishing of the lives of those that are poor. And then, you know, arguably there's worldview issues like an inadequate worldview. So I think a decent example of this is in, in the Hindu religion and in the culture where Hinduism kind of plays itself out in the systems in the world you have, well, you have a caste system that's worked Worked into society. There's an idea or a dogma or a concept of karma that teaches the poor that their state is kind of the repercussion of behavior in a former life, and so then if I try to convince you to do something about your state, I invite you to stand up and like stand up for yourself and and and, and gain some ground in this world. I'm actually inviting you to sin. I'm inviting you to work against the will of the gods. Let's say, and so an inadequate worldview could also be something that holds us in poverty and spiritual poverty and psychic poverty. Um, and all of these things kind of, kind of work together. And arguably I, I would argue that ultimately all of this is coming to a place to say poverty is something that is limiting our freedom, limiting our capacity to grow and execute our will. So I can't choose to buy something i can 't choose to go get something so access i can 't choose to fight for the situation to to impact the world around me to have voice and to have a impact on the world around me uh, or the knowledge to take care of those things or you know this is and the more that we will limit um, choices is and so this is this is I, I would say we come kind of full circle to where I would, I would actually say that this is maybe from a theological position in the beginning, right? In Genesis, we see that man is created to be free. Um, this I think is really well illustrated by the fact that there is a tree in the garden and a prohibition. Don't eat that. Right. So you're in paradise and there's one thing you're not supposed to do. And it could have been anything like, don't touch this. Don't walk there. Don't eat that. It doesn't matter what it represents is a choice Of not this, not this paradise, not this thing that God gave us. Because without that choice, even though I'm in paradise, I'd be a prisoner. I wouldn't be free to say, not God, not this way, not this world. And so the the human condition that, that is given to us, that we're created to have, is to be autonomous and free individuals, moral agents, to act with freedom and responsibility. And so then what we find is, By our own behavior, by our own sin, by our own fall, we begin to limit our own freedom. This is the effects of the fall. And this is where we see that kind of poverty or captivity begins to take hold. And I think, like the work of um, Christian and the Timothy Initiative, and I think addiction is a really great way to see that to go, I utilized my freedom to enjoy this substance that in time has owned me, has taken from me my will. I always think of the line in Fight Club. I don't know how many of you like that movie, but uh, Tyler Durden tells him, hey, the things you own will end up owning you, right? They take you, they own you, they possess you. And this is the way that we, we, be, we all experience poverty in every way that we don't act in our human freedom, free to respond to God, to be active in the world. Um, and so let me see here. Let me do this. Um, I'm going to actually see, okay, we're about to figure out if I can screen share. Do I know how to do this? I'm going to show you something. This has been, um, a helpful tool to me. Uh, give me one second here. I'll see what happens when I start shuffling notes. All right. Now you're looking at my screen. Let's see. Can y'all see my screen? No. Can y'all see it? Oh, you can. can Okay. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, Let's see here. Yeah, let's do, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go the other way around because I think this will be more helpful. So some of you have seen this before if you've listened to me talk pretty much ever about anything. Um, This is a really helpful tool for me and I'm going to share it every chance I get. Um, This actually comes from, Bryant Myers, Walking with the Poor. And it, it, it kind of addresses some of what we were talking about here. And it help, I, I find this extremely helpful because we realize we're functioning on all of these different levels at the same time. So let's start with the uh, the center circle with needs, right? And so this is what we think of when we talk about poverty. We think of concrete needs. I need a sandwich. I need some shoes. I need some clothes. I need some stuff, right? And what you'll find is behind every concrete need that you encounter, there's gonna be a deeper underlying issue. Issues like a lack of access, issues like a lack of ownership. Now, I would argue that for those of you that are familiar with Well Bikes, I think this is what Well Bikes is really trying to work to do through getting people transportation. Because if you own a means of transportation, it grants you access to the rest of the city. You're free to ride it to meet a lot of your own more basic needs. It addresses this deeper issue. Hey, by the way, if I say something and you wanna like speak up, just unmute yourself and say, yo, like I don't mind at all, right? Like I want this to be conversational. So if you need me to reiterate or answer any questions at any point, just ask. But underlying the needs are these deeper issues issues of access, issues of ownership, but underlying those are systems. Like I just fleshed out the caste system, right? But in our own country, it's a legal system. It's our laws, it's the kind of infrastructure that's in place, Um, whether that be cultural, legal, there's all of these kind of systems and, and narratives within which we operate. But underlying every system, and I use the word here ideology, although I've, I've grown less and less to love that word. I, I feel like perhaps the metaphysics, the philosophy, the, 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 the story behind the systems. So uh, I think an easy way to illustrate this in our context in North America is if you look back to the kind of origin story of our nation, it was founded with an ideology of white male supremacy. And that ideology then manifests itself in the systems that we put into place, right? Because of this deeper belief. And so these things are built. And so when you look at the systems that exist in the world, you can see the, the fingerprint of that deeper belief system, that deeper ideology, you'll see it in the, in the criminal justice system, you'll see it in the foster care system, you'll see it in the education system, name a system, medical systems, you'll see this play itself out in all of these places. And now I I would say hopefully less over time, but it's there because it was, the systems were built on top of this ideology. You could look at your own micro churches and you're building systems based on these beliefs, these core values, these things that you hold on to. And I I find this to be a really helpful thing for a couple of reasons. One, it helps us when we talk to one another, When we say, oh, it's, you lack some stuff. You go, oh, we're on the concrete level of needs. Or we're talking about the issues of limited access. Or we're talking about the systems that are in place, the principalities and powers, the spiritual realities behind those systems, the ideology, the metaphysics, because this is more at the spiritual level and then the concrete. And, And we have steps that take us there. And I would say this is a very helpful tool because it helps us understand what it is we're talking about and how we communicate with one another. So I wanted to give you this here from the beginning. And hopefully you can kind of, as you look back at some of the things that I covered, even just defining poverty is like, okay, it's, it's actually exists in all of these levels. It exists. And then it exists in us psychologically, spiritually. It exists in very material ways. Like I don't have a Cuban sandwich. I don't have some shoes. I don't have some housing or whatever. And it plays itself out in all of these places. And I, and I wanted to begin here with kind of a defining of poverty um, so that we have maybe some common language, like, okay, I think we maybe know what we're talking about, but at the most basic level, I would just say poverty is a lack of freedom. Like humans are created to be free and where you lack freedom, is an experience of a type of poverty. Um, And, and then just to take that a little further, I would say that poverty is so poverty is spiritual and it's related to relationships. So kind of back to the, the narrative of the fall, the creation in the fall, you're created to be free, but in the fall, we break relationships with one another. We break relationship with ourselves, with God, with the earth and poverty is the fruit of broken relationships. It's the thing that grows out of relationships that don't work like they should. Um, And so if sin is a force that divides us, that breaks relationships apart, which by the way, poverty only amplifies poverty, rips people apart, families apart, destroys lives, dehumanizes people. But if poverty or sin is the thing that divides us, you know, the the love love is what unites right love is the thing that's going to bring us back together let me pause there um just to see like have i lost all of you are we good are we on this are we following are there any questions that have emerged if not i'll keep rolling but it's all good i want to give you a moment
0: good we're good to keep going one question john you said that uh uh Poverty can be seen on all the different layers. Yeah. Could you give an example of how we would see poverty in an ideology or of philosophy?
2: Well, so I think the idea of, yeah, I mean, okay, sure. Well, I use the example of karma, right? Like karma is an ideology and it's an ideology that affects, like if you believe that and you build systems on that, you'll build a caste system. And it's actually wrong to not accept your lot in life. You're destined to be poor, right? That is a, that is a uh, an impoverished framework, let's say. Um, I, and then I would just and I can't go too far off on this because I'll go way off on this. But like I would argue that like the the Christian, uh, and a Christian, I'm using this way, like the the churches that preach a gospel of prosperity. Mm-hmm are preaching a message a lot like karma that this is Mm -hmm. really the power of positive thinking. And what happens in it is that it implies, even if it's not explicitly stated that if you're in a wheelchair, you don't have enough faith to get out of it. If you don't have enough money in the bank, it's your fault. You haven't exercised, um, the, the faith necessary to, to, you know, claim your inheritance or whatever. Right. And, and so, so, so that's, I think that if there's no other questions, that's actually a good question for me to transition into what I wanted to talk about. Good with that. Um, Okay. So what I'm going to do, let's see. Okay. I'm going to give you like a little, I want to roll right into this. So I want to talk about lenses and our context. Right. And I think your question leads us really well into that. Um, but before I jump into the, cause I want to jump into the, in response to that, to the Bible and the use of the Bible, um, in, in the way that we perceive poverty and the way that we interact with the poor. Uh, but before I do, I think it's important to set ourselves in time and in the world. And so, um, it's very important to remember that we are, uh, Western people. And so by Western, um, what that means is like in a line of thought in philosophical tradition, we are Hellenized or we, we come from the tradition of the Greeks the Romans, the, the Greco Roman world. Right. And, and then also in time. So we went through a season of what was called modernity. And then we've come into like a, what's called a postmodern era. And I don't even know if we're like emerging into something completely new now, because it like actually we're, pivoting away from some of the postmodern ideas as well. But I think it's important because as we come through these things, we inherit some lenses culturally in our place in the world. And so let me walk you through. So Hellenization or the Greek, let's say Greek philosophy. So some of you may have taken classes in college, or you may have read like Plato's Republic or the last days of Socrates. Like those are great examples, ones I'm quite familiar with. So Socrates would say something like my soul is imprisoned in my body right and they have this what's called a dualism that we kind of understand this like we're a body and we have a soul and the greeks would understand the soul to be the thing that is good and the body to be broken evil um and and actually a lot of christians inherit this exact idea but It's not, it's not exactly biblical as much as it is like Greek and the version of spiritual Christian spirituality that really held onto that was called Gnosticism. And the Gnostics would believe that like the the flesh is actually evil and the spirit is what's good and it needs to be set free. And so we have these ideas that your soul is set free from your body at the time of death or whatever. But what would happen is the Greeks would devalue the material world and they would heighten the value of the spiritual world, right? So what happened in time and as we move along into modernity is that in the enlightenment, there would be a rise in science and measurability. So the, the scientific mind, the modern mind would say, look, it's what's concrete that matters. Like I could touch it, taste it, feel it, measure it, count it. So this spiritual world, the world of the gods and genies and demons, that's all nonsense. It's complete nonsense. And so But we didn't break with the dualism. We just went, one was more important than the other, and then the other is more important than the other. So we pivoted, right? But we never broke with the idea that these things were united. And it's very hard for us to think holistically, but like the writers of scripture, the Hebrews and the early Christians understood the, the kind of Jewish understanding of the body and, and the, the, the human being, is it your body, mind, spirit? You're embedded in a community, in a people, and you're holistic. You're all of those things. This is why it's a religion of resurrection, bodily, right? You, this is why the risen Jesus uh, has, has wounds. This is why um, even in the visions of the kingdom, it's like the, 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 the lamb still looks as though he's been slaughtered. There's, it's bodily, right? It's incarnate, um, Always. There is no idea of like disembodied spirits floating around. That's not, that's a Helen, that's a Hellenized idea. But I just want to bring this up to say, it's important for us to think in these terms because what'll happen is, and you'll see this in versions of our Christianity, you'll have a very liberal Christian that says, I care about the poor and the hungry. And I care about the physical, the physical realities within which we exist, the systems, the structures, the injustices, but maybe there's salvation, maybe there's a soul, maybe any of that actually matters. Like there's, a, there's an abandoning of that, right? And so Christians that lean that way often aren't big on prayer, fasting, like these things don't, they're not tools that they're applying. Whereas on the flip side, and maybe this is more common or has been in my experience, more Christians maybe lean toward, we want to save souls. It's about going to heaven when you die. But like we're not addressing the body, the physical situations, the systems within which we live, the the conditions of your body, your family, your psyche, all of these realities, right? And so to me, I just think, oh, it's important to acknowledge that so that we can think or push ourselves to try to think more holistically, right? And to think of poverty as something that affects our bodies, minds, relationships, and our souls, Okay. So are we good? Do you guys follow that? Okay. So then I, and then the other lens that I think is important is, and this is where I'm going to screen share again, if I can figure this out again, let's see. Um, Is it's about the, the, let's say the meta narrative of scripture, kind of the big, the big picture of the Bible. So I just made this little chart Um, on the left. You're going to see some uh, narrative themes. So this should be, familiar right and and there's more of them but you got the creation the fall we already referenced those you have the the incarnation and then i just put together the if you don't know the eschaton means the end so end time, eschatologies eschatology like the study of end times usually revelation and the prophetic not always about the coming of the future but something like the voice of the prophet so i just combined those and then soteriology which is like salvation the study of salvation or whatever so i gave you these and then in the the next line you'll see key passages and there's more but i just picked one to represent or a couple lines like in the prof profits i was like here's entire books that go with that and what i want to talk about is the um conclusions and the possible applications so let's see here yeah so Basically, let's just take the creation, right? You look at Genesis 1, man is created by God. And and what we know about God at this point is that God is free and God is creative and man is made, man and woman are made in the image of God. And so if now I'm trying to apply this specifically to the poor, you can, you can utilize this in other ways and other contexts, but, but right now we're saying the poor were created by God. The poor are created in God's image. The poor are creative. And if this is our understanding of the poor, then what might we do? How might we live in response or act, interact with those that we perceive to be the poor? And perhaps we empower, we enable, we're like, well, you're made to be creative. So here are the tools, the paintbrushes that you need to paint the creative picture that God has given you. Your, your, your creative creator made to be free, right? That's beautiful. And maybe it'll be more clear in the next line. Like, so then let's just take the fall. So the fall, and these are all like in the Bible, they're all part of the narrative. They're all theologically true. Uh, But what will happen is we become committed to one of these over the other. Right. And that's where we find ourselves in some problems. So this one will be more familiar. I think the fall, So you guys are familiar with the fall Genesis three where sinners were fallen. And so we apply this to the poor. We're like, look, they're sinners. And in that way they deserve it. Like God helps those that help themselves, right? Like this is, this is, this is related by the way, to the idea that you're in that situation because of something you've done because of some character deficit, something is wrong with you because this is a result of your sin. Now, This is a very, I mean, this may be a, this is probably a very familiar line of argument. It's a, it's a very um, common conservative um, response to the poor. And I would argue it's true. Sometimes it's just not entirely true, right? Because the part about being created in the image of God was true too. Oh, and you're a sinner. But if you just see this line, you read the lens of the poor through the or you read, you interact with the poor through the lens of the fall, then you want to correct them. You want to challenge them. You want to share the gospel with them. Right. Does this make sense now in the incarnation? So you'll have like, um, you know, John one, like God, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is Emmanuel. God is with us. God is. So then we would say, okay, God is with the poor. And then actually in later we see Jesus say, I was sick. I was hungry. I was in prison. So he identifies the incarnation, identifies himself with the poor. He finds a way to be. So then we might say, well, then we need to find a way to be with them, to identify with them, to offer hope to them, to walk in solidarity with them. Right. Um, I'm going to just keep flying through these in the, in the eschaton, the prophetic, the, the key passages: Exodus, Prophets. So then, conclusions are like: you'll, if you read these books, you'll be like, huh, "Oh shit, we're in exile because we neglected the poor." All of these terrible things have happened. You know, Isaiah is like, God is sick of your religious gatherings. He doesn't want to. He doesn't listen when you pray, and the reason is because you neglect the poor. So we go, okay, well, conclusions, God favors the poor, God hears the cries of the poor, the poor are blessed. And so we might stand up and be ones that'll fight for justice, speak truth to power, try to tackle socio-political, economic systems and structures. Um, and then and then, soteriology, right? This is like the Matthew 28, the Great Commission, or maybe the Book of the Acts in the early church. But often, and this might tend toward the more spiritualization things, there's an eternal tomorrow, a better future in heaven. And so maybe we find that we just preach the gospel to them. And we find that our interaction is focused more on the soul, more on some kind of a disembodied um, reality. Now, these are all biblical. These are all true in some sense. Um, but, the, but the problem, the potential danger to us is that we apply only one. So in the same way that we go, we think spiritual or we think physical, and there's a threat going either way without thinking holistically. This is, this is to say, like, if I just think in one or two of these, I'm honestly not thinking biblically, right? Like you have to take the whole into account. And any one of these can be dangerous uh, so we want to avoid thinking in a dualistic parati- paradigm and then also resist the temptation to make any statements that are not holistic about our – and and apply them in our approach to the poor and honestly in our approach to mankind. This is like in the end, the poor, the poor are people. That's just a simple thing to remember. They're like you. They're created by God like you. They're fallen like you. Um, God is – Identifies with them like he does with you. Of in our interactions there. Uh, let me see. I'm gonna close this out. You guys have any questions?
0: Would it be possible to? I guess you can email that to me, the slides and the graphics, and then I'll email that out to people. Cause I think a lot of that stuff is really, really good. And just need more time to
2: like unpack. Yeah. Uh, some of the, well, and I, and I, yes, I can, y'all did the screenshot. So yeah, I can do that. And then I will also say um, a lot of this can be found and way better articulated in Bryant Myers, walking with the poor. One of the most important books I've ever read. I can't recommend it enough. You will recognize so much of this from it. Um, It has completely shaped my thinking and honestly, my life in the way that I try to live and work um, in the work that we do. All right. So we covered that. We covered that. Um, Okay. So how much time do we have? Like 40 minutes. I'm going to try something if I can do this. So, okay. If you guys are good to, I see a lot of you are taking notes. I'm going to do something that may or may not work, but, because I'm telling you, you should think biblically, think holistically, kind of address all these things. Um, and the idea, you know, I've said, well, poverty really is a lack of freedom. And by the way, theologically humans are created to be free. So those are like the simple things. And I want to illustrate, um, that real quick, but then I'm going to illustrate it with like a, well, I'll just do it. So I have a book, um, It's the, this is a version of it. This isn't the one, um, but Gandhi's autobiography. So I have another hard copy of this. And in the hard copy, there's like the sleeve on it. And on the inside of the sleeve, there's a photograph. And it's like sandals, glasses, a pen or pen or something, a little journal, and like a loom. That's it. And it says Gandhi's possessions at the time of his death. And, and then I think a lot about like someone like a St. Francis of Assisi who pursued lady poverty, right. Had took a vow of poverty, had nothing, no possessions. And in some sense, we might think like, oh, that's poor. They were poor. Um, and, and you might take like a homeless friend of mine and go, here's a photograph of his possessions at the time of his death. And it looked damn near identical other than the cultural differences one were sandals, one were Nikes, but like very little possession, right? But I would argue that those guys are the expression of human freedom. Like these are the Buddha, Gandhi, Jesus. These are people that have reached what we might say is something like enlightenment, something like liberation, complete liberation to the point where they can let go of material possessions. And so they may resemble someone that we think of as poor, but they are the opposite of poor in the way that we are talking about. They are liberated. They are free. The lack of possessions is a, is a, is a demonstration of freedom as opposed to a type of captivity, right? Is That helpful. So for me, that's been really helpful because it helps to illustrate the fact that it isn't just a lack of stuff. It isn't just some deficit. Now, what I want to try to do is I'm going to probably go too fast and you're not going to be able to catch it all, but I'm trusting you guys have read the Bible and are, did I just, you guys hear me still? Did it just get worse? Yeah,
0: you're good. You're good.
2: All right. Sweet. I feel like I'm hearing sound now, but all right. So I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to make a sweeping overview of the Bible um, to make something of like a, what's up? You're making a face. You hear that?
0: Yeah, I hear it. Everyone's hearing
2: that. Okay. That's, is it gone? That's my janky cord. (laughs) All right. So sorry about that. I shouldn't have touched it. So, okay. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to start in the beginning and I'm going to run through the Bible and I'm going to, I'm going to hope to illustrate kind of God's heart for the poor in the narrative of scripture. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made man and woman. They were created in God's image. This is where we started with Genesis one and creation, and and I talked to you about the the place of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is because the humans are created to be free, which I already told you, and so this represents an option so that they wouldn't be prisoners in paradise. And we see that from the very beginning, the freedom of man is a priority for God. To be human is to be free, and to strip a human of freedom is to dehumanize that person it's to negate or desecrate the image of god in that human so if you put a person in a cage you dehumanize that person and so if god had removed the tree of knowledge of good and evil it would have been removing our freedom to opt out uh, which would have actually been a stripping of human freedom Um, because we had the option to choose another way so we weren't prisoners there And so and so this is, you know, poverty, as I've already said, is to be without choices and poverty strips people of their God given freedom. And that is that it dehumanizes. And this is why the work of God is to liberate, to set captives free. Right. Um, And so. And so on our application of freedom, we fall We, uh, we, we mar this perfect image. Um, we become captives because of our own behavior, because of our own, we alienate ourselves from God and each other and from ourselves. And so as you move along in the narrative, you'll come across stories and characters like Noah, And Noah is set apart because the world has become corrupt. It's become an evil place. And God, we see, is interested in working in and through those he's created to set things straight again. And God's mission is to restore man and woman to right relationship with himself, with each other, with creation, and with the earth that we're given to steward. And so you can fast forward to Egypt, where the Israelites are living under severe oppression in slavery. And God, it says, hears the cries of his people, and God moves in history on their behalf to crush those that built their wealth on the backs of these oppressed people that he loves. And this story is what leads us to Torah. He then gives a law, and it is God's liberating activity on behalf of his suffering people that leads to the covenant, to a covenant with his people. And he says, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, keep my commandments. This is Exodus nineteen four and 5. And God's call to his people is related to their oppressed condition and to God's own liberating activity that's made known in the Exodus. He is active in human history. God is revealed as the God of the oppressed that is involved in history and liberating them from human bondage. And so as Torah then is given to Moses, we find there are 613 laws, precepts, and a large number of those laws are concerned with economics, with social justice, with hospitality for the stranger. Welcoming the stranger is the most repeated charge in all of scripture, hospitality for the poor and on and on. God is clearly concerned with the plight of the poor. God's actions and law demonstrate this central concern. Then as Israel neglects the poor and fails to practice the sabbatical years, which were set up to care for the poor and fails to execute Jubilee, which was implemented for social and economic justice, they find themselves in exile and the prophets rise up to point this out. They say, look, you neglect the poor and you're going to suffer. And the rise of Old Testament prophecy is due primarily to a lack of justice within the community. The prophets of Israel are prophets of social justice. They remind the people of God that God is the author of justice. And God's righteousness is not some abstract quality, but that God is actively involved in history, making right what humans are making wrong. And the consistent theme in Israelite prophecy is Yahweh's concern with a lack of social, economic, and political justice for those who are poor and unwanted in society. So you hear again and again the orphans and the widows and the oppressed and the poor. He'll, you know, it's like, oh, you're in bondage in an empire? That's interesting. You're in captivity? Why do you think that is? because you neglect the aliens, the widows, the orphans, the marginalized, the strangers, the ones in need. This is the response of the prophets and prophets like Isaiah. They question the very religion of the Israelites practice. They practice convention rather than remaining com- and com- committed to keeping the covenant. And he would tell them in no uncertain terms, God is displeased. When you pray, he plugs his ears. Your incense makes him sick. He thinks your songs are stupid and he thinks your rituals suck. They're ridiculous. But if, this is Isaiah 58, if you spend yourself on behalf of the poor, if you clothe the naked and welcome the stranger, if you stop turning away from your own flesh and blood, your brothers and sisters that are suffering and in need, then your light will break forth like the dawn. Then your healing will quickly appear. Then you will call on him and he'll be like, I'm right here. What's up? which is everything we've ever wanted in our relationship from God. And it's made very clear in Isaiah 58, how it works. And this theme continues and progresses in the new Testament with Jesus himself. This is the logos, the reason, the philosophy, the purpose, which John writes was God and was, was with God. And in the beginning becomes flesh. The word becomes a deed. God leaves the throne and the majesty of heaven and moves into the neighborhood take on suffering to take on the form and the nature of a servant and to become obedient to death at the hands of a state execution and jesus himself becomes the ultimate loyalty to humankind he is the kingdom and this has far-reaching implications for economic political and social institutions they can no longer have an ultimate claim on human life because human beings are to be free and in every way In every way that they are not free, he announces his intent to set them free. And then they are free to rebel against the powers that threaten human lives. This is what Jesus announces with his first scripture reading that he reads after wrestling with the devil in the desert. He walks straight into the temple depleted from fasting and fighting with the devil. And he takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he unrolls it and he reads his mission statement out loud. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for captives and the recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Luke 4, 18 and 19. And for those that know the text that he's referring to, it's Isaiah 61. And that would continue to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve. And so given the biblical emphasis on God setting man free, it seems not only appropriate, but necessary that we define our communities, the Christian community as a community of the oppressed for the oppressed that joins Jesus in his pursuit to set mankind free. What was for the oppressed community in Israel in the resurrection of Jesus becomes for all oppressed people. The resurrection means freedom for all that are enslaved by the principalities and powers. Freedom becomes possible. And so the language of theology challenges societal structures because it stands with, and it emerges from the suffering. So theology, then Christian theology is never neutral. It doesn't fail to take sides because it's related to the plight of the poor and the oppressed. So whatever theology says about God has to arise out of this identification that God makes throughout all of scripture. That is what Christian theology says. Jesus would say, and by the way, I would argue if a Christian thinks that the incarnation is an important theological concept, then I would argue that the identification that that incarnation makes is of equal importance theologically. So Matthew 25, he says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in. I was sick. I was in prison. You didn't look after me. And they say, when? When did we see you? And he reminds them of every nameless face of poverty and hunger and hurt and pain and oppression that they've encountered. There is never a nonpartisan Christian theology. Theology is identified with the community it is identified with the 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 oppressed the poor the the those in pain it is it finds its home in the wounds in this world those that suffer so i even would go back to the story the earliest story really which is um cain and abel and the it says And his blood cries out from the ground. This is the beginning of the response of the gospel, it's like God responding to the blood that cries out from the ground. This is what the cross is given in response to. It is the the cry that emanates from the wounds of the victims. And the cross itself is Jesus entering into solidarity, becoming a victim, standing in solidarity with every victim of every crime that this world has ever known to make the poor, to make the wound the sight and the presence of God in the world. And God is then, so God is with the poor and the marginalized. And we see throughout the scripture, God is not uninvolved. It is not neutral, but takes a very active role in history in a very particular way and is decidedly involved and is decidedly, let's say, on the side of those who have no one on their side. And so we as a community, your communities, have to make a decision where you stand, where we stand, if we're to be Christian communities. And there's a line in the sand because you got to pick a side. God takes sides in this way. And we must make a decision about where God is at work so that we can also join in the fight against evil and the stripping of human freedom and oppression in this world. And so we're free to make that choice, but I want to read here uh, the value statement that's from the underground manifesto, which I imagine you guys have been going through or familiar with, but I'm just going to read it because I, I think it well articulates this, this call. So here it is, the poor, we will remember the poor because we believe that God does. We believe that they are central to his mission in the world. It is our conviction that God is always on the side of those who have no one on their side. And for that reason, we believe the church should also stand on the side of the poor and in so doing, stand in solidarity with the heart and work of God. Jesus' own ministry is our model. We welcome all people, but prioritize the poor in our ministry concern, allocation of resources, and advocacy. We do this not because the rich and middle class are less important to God, but because they already have access to resources that are able and are able to advocate their own cause. It is our belief that the church should therefore prioritize and remember those who have less and access to less so that in all things there might be equality. God stands with those who have no one on their side. Jesus, that logos become flesh, moves in the neighborhood and leveraged every privilege for the sake of the suffering and broken world. Jesus is God become poor. He's born in a barn to parents that gave, by the way, what was the sacrificial exception who they knew, right? They saw angels that said, this is the Messiah being born. You would think you'd give a proper sacrifice. But if you read this story, you see, she gives two doves, which is an exception made for those that cannot afford the proper sacrifice. And if you really reflect on that, it'll blow your mind. And he's born in a podunk town in Nazareth, which they said, can anything good come from that hood? He had no place to lay his head. And he lived and worked among the poor. And he dies among forgotten criminals whose names are blotted out of history. And Jesus, his work makes the margins central to the heart and mission of God in the world. It's for the poor and the pre and the oppressed that the gospel is destined. I came to bring good news to the poor and it's to them that the gospel is preferentially addressed, primarily addressed. So back to the keen and Abel thing, it is good news to the violator, but it's only good news to the violator after it's good news to the victim. It is primarily good news to the victim. And then th- through their blood through their wounds through the potential of reconciliation it is good news to everybody all right that's my best stab at a sweeping as it is kind of sweeping through scripture i tried to do that as fast as i could which i recognize was probably way too fast to like really track with or take notes but i've left us enough time to kind of pick it apart a little bit so uh talk to me. You guys have any thoughts? Is there anything I need to address? Tell me is anything I'm missing on here, but I, I just wanted to give you, I don't know, some framework and some, and some foundation to begin with.
0: I am just trying to catch up. My hands can't write fast enough. And so if anyone else has questions while I'm trying to remember while it's fresh, go ahead and ask. Um,
2: question um can you just go back over just i was really intrigued by your comments on the wounds john um how the wound can you talk just a bit about that a little bit more about the wounds yeah so there is an idea Hmm. i i can but i'm also going to tell you i'm not going to address it fully because to do that would be to take us into every to undo every theological so okay Um, so in a theology of, um, hmm, where can I begin here? Okay. I have a problem. Let's start here. I have a problem. If you tell me that Jesus died for my sin and my sin was violating, let's say a vulnerable woman. Now I'm not saying I, that Jesus didn't die for my sin. But I have a problem with a gospel that is addressed to the violator first, because that is not the gospel. That is not the story found in scripture. The cry that emanates from the ground, from the blood is the blood of the victim. God is moved in response to the cries of the oppressed. And it is only secondarily good news to the violator, right? Because justice must be like, if, if, if the victim cries out, well, one, if I am violating someone and they cry out, I'm the one that is primarily in the position to respond to their cries, but I don't because I'm a violator. Right. And then when I wound that person, if I really come to a place of repentance, if I come to a place of like, I shouldn't have done that, I want to make it right. Well, then what can I do, but go to the victim. This is uh Christian's probably familiar with this from the 12 steps is go to try to make amends, go to see if there's anything I can do. Like if I, I don't know if I broke your arm and I'm really sorry about it, then I should try to be your arm. In, in repentance right to come and offer myself to undo the damage that I've done or to compensate in some way for the damage that I've done to try to make it right knowing full well that I cannot go back history is not erasable I can't undo and I will always be the one that did that and you will always be the one that it was done to and that is why I believe that the image of the lamb is one that has been slaughtered and why the resurrected Jesus had wounds I truly believe that wounds are eternal and they don't go away, but they're transformed. So they become the fountain of life. So the, so to me, if I violated you, if I wounded you, that wound, if I think about this, if is heaven a place where I have to look on the wounds of the Holy of holies that I inflicted, that's hell. That is hell. I have to look at the damage that I did for all of eternity. How could that be anything but hell? Unless by some miracle, some grace of God, some transformation of the power of the wound that the love of God has entered into that wound. And then I come to that wound and that wound for me becomes the very source of salvation. Now that's, that's about as best as I could do in the time that we have. Cause there's like a whole like list of, books that, that I, I would have to like unpack to walk you through that journey. Uh, but is that helpful? Am I even somewhat addressing that? Um, so for me, I'm like, yo, know, the wound is central. Your wounds, the things that you want to run from in your life are the most likely place where God can be found in your own psyche, in your own heart, the things you don't want anything to do with. Right. And the same is true in the people in your city the prostitutes, the sinners, the tax collectors, the ones that nobody wants anything to do with. These are the place where God can be found. Jesus makes this very clear. In, and by the way, I, <laughs> um, the stone that the builders refused has become the head cornerstone, right? This is a reference to Jesus. But that, what does it, by the way, if you've ever worked on a construction site, you find the stone the builders refused in the dumpster. You find it in the trash pile. And this is to say that God is a dumpster diver and he's taking the things that you don't value, the things that you don't want and he's building his kingdom with them because our value system is completely upside down, completely backwards. And so think about your own life. What are the bones in the closet? You don't want to address. What are the people in your city that you don't want anything to do with? What is the person in your family that you don't ever want to see again? What is the part of your own history you hope never comes up again? And you just created a list of all of the most likely places where you can encounter God and where you can find healing and grace. It's in the wounds. It's in the trash pile.
0: Any other questions? um i just want to say i had to take a call for my job so that's why i was kind of gone for a while <laughs> all good <laughs> and i came back to um that's something i always talk about not living from mm. my wounds mm. um you know because i do feel like um a wound can be a filter <laughs> That you live life through and and, and it could be from a dysfunctional place, but I do love this perspective because it made me think about the Harriet movie movie i don 't know uh, if any of you guys have seen it uh, the movie that 's about her life, but when she addresses uh, the underground railroad people, she 's at a meeting and she tells them that they 're too comfortable that they have forgotten they, they've nev- they either never been through slavery or they um um, they have been born free or whatever, or they're, they're not slaves. They were white people or whatever. So she was saying how you're too comfortable. You forgot. We can't forget about the sufferings that these people are enduring. And it's kind of like the wounds that she remembers, the, the wounds of slavery. And it's one of the things that was driving her to go and set other people free. So I just think about uh, wounds, um, how they can produce so much compassion the things that we have gone through it can produce a compassion and almost like a, a fire that will spur us onward to go back and help those that are suffering with something that we have also suffered with so that's it, it, what yeah stirs me up when you're talking about that that's what what came to my mind
2: Man, it's good to hear. And and it is, I mean, even, even in, and I'm not, I have no like uh, psychological training, but even in psychology, there's ways in which it's like, look, if this thing is damaging and threatening, like you can't talk about this thing that happened, this trauma, it still has a hold over you and affects your behavior in a deep, deep way. You've got to like work through these things. And what happens is that, you know, like Jung had this idea that we, we incorporate the shadow. There's things in us that are dark, that are like aggression, right? And it's like, oh, that's bad. You're like got all this fight. But it's like, no, there's, a, there's an appropriate place for my aggression, but I need to own it. It needs to be a part of who I am. My wounds become a part of who I am. And I don't call any of this Like I recognize that all of this can be leveraged for the glory of God. All of this can be transformed by the redeeming blood of Jesus that all of this has. And and for me, it's been really helpful to reflect on the idea that those things are eternal. Look at the images of the resurrected Jesus and the lamb on the throne and go for all of eternity, it will be there. This isn't like I will be with Jesus in heaven and won't have any of these scars. And, and, And to me, that's a deep point of theological reflection. And by the way, a great way to relate. So the reason I think it's important to set up poverty the way I am and to bring us back to go, you have very real tangible experiences with poverty in your own life, your own addiction, your own behavior, your own wounds. What this does is it gives you the capacity to to be in reciprocal relationship to people that the world's like the poor, right? The poor is mankind. Now, that isn't to over-spiritualize it and be like, there's not very real, concrete, destitute poverty. And that's a major problem. And we all need to pay major attention to that and those people in our lives. But it is to say we're not unlike them. It's just that when they sin, life falls apart. And when you sin, you have a system of privilege built around you in a way that you don't fall apart completely. But you're both sinners. You're both lazy. You both suck all the time and you both do great things. And like all of that, it just puts us in a place to be in real, honest, reciprocal relationship. Uh, Okay. So unless there's any pressing questions, I'm going to try to close with, um, I'm going to close with a a little story um, that has been really meaningful to me and resonates Um really with me and now I'm gonna I wanna I know the story but I still wanna like find it here just so I don't screw it up completely. Yep, I don't have it. I shuffled too much, y'all. Hold on, I'm gonna find it. Nope, I'm sure not. It doesn't matter. I know the story. All right, so it's the story of Saint Francis. Um I did find it. Check that out. So Saint Francis um, was raised in a, in a wealthy family when he was young, and his family owned like a textile business. So they're in a CC and they've got they sell fine clothes and you know they sell like you know cloth and whatever, uh, leather goods. And his entire life, like from childhood, he wants to be a knight. He sees these knights going around, princes and all this, and he's like, I'm gonna be a great prince. I want to be a knight. And he would. He actually talked his dad because they had money. He talked his dad into buying him a little chain mail, right? So he could, and you, any of you with kids or cousins or whatever, you know, like you want, you, you embody it. So he dresses up like a knight and he's running around with this chain mail and he gets his little knight outfit and his dad buys it for him. But as he grows up, he works in this textile place with his dad, he, leather goods, folding cloth and all this stuff. But one night he has a dream. And in his dream, his father's house is turned into a palace. And that palace is filled with arms. So the, the leather and the cloth and the things of the saddles, they start to transform into shields and lances and uh, military equipment and, and helmets. And so he wakes up ec- 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 ecstatic. He, he's bouncing around the shop because he feels like This was a word from God. God spoke to me in my dreams and he confirmed my lifelong passion. I'm going to be a prince. I'm going to be a great knight. And he's, he's in there and he's working and he's running around the shop and and a customer comes up. He's like, yo, what's gotten into you? He's like, I had a dream. I had a vision. God has spoke to me. I'm going to be a great prince. I'm going to be a great knight." Okay, whatever. Uh, Get back to work. Um, But as time goes on and he gets older, he actually goes to enter the military. And so he gets on a horse, he gets his gear together and he sets off, he sets off to, to join the military and on his way, he hears from God and God says to him, you, you did receive a vision from me, but you misinterpreted it completely. And so I want you to turn around and go home. Like, do not join the military. You misunderstood. And, and Francis is someone who's very serious about if he hears from God, he, he applies, right? Which is awesome. So he's like, all right, I'm going to turn around. He's sure he hears from God. And he turns around leaving his dreams, his lifelong dreams behind and he heads home and on his way back to town, he sees in the middle of the road, a leper. And this was like his great nightmare, by the way. He hated, he was so like high in disgust. It was like, oh, those sick people, like they're going to get me sick. Like this was, it horrified him. This leper was in his way. And he heard, he hears God whisper in his ear. He said, this is the war. This is the battle. This is the, this is the fight for you to have courage in. And so he jumps off the horse and he runs to the man and he embraces him. he hugs him and 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 they enter into a little relationship and then that man would say hey why don't you join me come to my house come i have a community over here and it's a community of lepers and they take him home and he ends up moving in to this community of lepers living with them working with them and this
1: so the recording cut off right there right as i was kind of to wrap up the story so he moves in with these lepers, and of course, Francis becomes St. Francis of Assisi as we know him. And people would say to St. Francis, like, it's amazing what you, you know, what you do for these poor people, what, you know, as you care for these lepers, all the work that you do. As people would, might say to me, you know, oh man, I don't know how you do it, you know, care for the homeless or work with these people, that people. But like Francis, Francis would reply He's like, man, you don't understand, do you? Because it's them that took me in. It was them that saved me. It was them that set me free. It was them that welcomed me and made me whole. It's so good what they do for me.
2: Hey, real quick, before you go, I want to invite you to join the conversation. One of the first comments that was left on one of the first episodes was somebody saying that they wanted to join in the conversation the entire time. And I've heard that from a few of you and I really want to invite you to do that. So if you go to workethicpodcast.com, there is a link to join the conversation where you can click that link and chime in, uh, maybe answer what success is to you, what's your earliest memory of work, your own experience of, of what triggers flow state or your own understanding of grit, but I want to invite you to join the conversation. I would also like to invite you to help grow this conversation and this podcast and show. So if you would, please share, please subscribe, please leave feedback on the show, uh, rate it, uh, comment on socials, and then if you would, please, please, please consider supporting uh, the cost, the expense that this show is becoming, and also uh, kind of my own work uh, with the podcast and with the well and well built bikes. And you can do that by going to patreon.com/slash/theWorkEthic, or there's also a link at workethicpodcast.com. Thank you so much for considering it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing, and thank you for being a part of this conversation and this project.